Welcome to the Insurgents Podcast with Frank Viola. And he's brought a friend. This is the podcast that supplements Frank's groundbreaking book, Insurgents, Reclaiming the Gospel of the Kingdom, which is shaking up the Christian world. You can find out details about the book at insurgents.org. Sit back, open all four ears, physical and spiritual, and join the insurgents. Here's Frank. Welcome, welcome, boys and girls. I am glad to be back with you on the Insurgents podcast. It's January 2021. I hope you're having a happy new year thus far, and you are recovering from the disaster saga called 2020. Six months ago, we put the podcast on pause, but as promised, we're back. A few announcements. First, because of COVID, I have been unable to meet together with my regular conversation partners. I also discovered that recording online, which we did for several episodes, does not meet my standards for sound quality, so I shan't be using that method again. I do hope however, to get together with some of my discussion partners this year. And so a shout out to previous conversation partners. If you're listening to this and you want to appear on future episodes, hit me up. Second, the next several episodes will feature recent interviews I did with a number of podcasters where we discuss the gospel of the kingdom and many other issues that are related to it. Today's episode will feature an interview that Brian Russell, a seminary professor at Asbury, did with me in November 2020. Brian asked me many questions that no interviewer has ever asked, so I trust you'll find it interesting, inspiring, and edifying. Once we're through releasing the subsequent interviews in the next several episodes, we're going to take a new direction. There are almost 90 unique references to the Kingdom of God in the Gospels, and when we get through the interview episodes, I intend to discuss every reference to the kingdom of God in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John on the podcast. And once we've finished all of those references, then we'll discuss every reference to the kingdom of God in the rest of the New Testament. So when the project is fully completed, you will have heard a conversation on every mention of the kingdom of God in the New Testament right here on the Insurgents podcast. Third, if you're new to the podcast, I want you to know that the previous 75 episodes all build on each other and form the foundation for everything following it. So subscribe to the podcast and go back and listen to the previous episodes to get caught up. Binging is permitted. All right, here's my interview with Brian Russell. He asked many behind-the-scenes questions about my own spiritual practices and the personal stories that lie behind my work on the kingdom of God, some of which are very dear to my heart and that I've never shared publicly before. Enjoy. Frank, it's uh, so great to be with you today. Thanks for being on the show. Well, let's just jump right in. Uh, can you, you've, you've done a, a lot of... Uh, You've written a lot of best-selling books. You've had ministry. You've run conferences. Uh, you've been involved in organic expressions of the church really since college. Uh, mm-hmm. Can you share some key moments in your spiritual journey that led you to becoming a writer and a teacher and a blogger and a speaker that you are today? Well, I've been writing ever since I was in my 20s. And in those days, it would be in the form of pamphlets 
or what we would call tracks. I was inspired by Last Days Ministries, the ministry of Keith Green. I love Keith back Green. I didn't and, know that. And they would put out these these tracks, these little pamphlets. And so, as I was learning various truths about the Lord and from the Lord, I would do the same, distribute them to friends. Then in the 90s, the mid to late 90s, I was introduced to the internet. And back then you didn't have blogs, you had websites. And so I created a website and that was my, my test drive, so to speak, to the world. And at that time I was writing about my own questions, my own understandings, my own discoveries when it came to radical church restoration. I was experimenting with a group of Christians fresh out of college where we were trying to discover what the church really was. We knew that church as we know it today, or at least we felt it, that was not biblical. It, it didn't appear to be in line with scripture in so many areas. And so we set out to try and rediscover the church ourselves. And we had no idea what we were doing, but we were meeting together in a very simple way in a home. We did not have a pastor. We didn't have a clergy. And that was a, an eight year journey Brian. Uh, we actually, it was so intense, we crammed 16 years into eight. And we touched something of what I would call the organic expression of the body of Christ, which was life-changing for me. And really, not only turned my world upside down, but I began to understand why Paul of Tarsus would travel throughout the world, why he would endure some of the most immense suffering and it wasn't so that Christians could go through a ritual every Sunday, and it wasn't to have relationships or barbecues. It was for this beautiful girl called the Bride of Christ. And we had experienced something of her in living color and in experience. And so a lot of my early writings were about those discoveries. And then from the website, then moved over to being in touch with a publisher who uh, was interested in what I was doing and uh, wanted to publish me. And so that's how it all started. It, I never woke up and said, I want to be a writer. <laughs> it just kind of happened from the early days of putting out pamphlets and stapled together booklets to the website to being published by, uh, by a reputable publisher. Now, did you come to faith in a traditional church and then you found the organic expression? or how? Could you say just a little bit more about that? Yes, sir. So I came to the Lord in an Assemblies of God, mm -hmm. and then my early Christian growth was in a Church of God, both Pentecostal mm -hmm. denominations. So my roots are in the Pentecostal heritage. From there, moved into the charismatic world, and you have all different varieties and flavors in the charismatic world and um, traversed the whole gamut from word faith to open Bible to vineyard to <laughs> you name it. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of tribes in the charismatic movement. And then from there, moved on to a lot of other different denominations. During my college days, it was part of many different parachurch organizations. Mm -hmm. And so I got a good sampling of what's out there in the Christian world. Basically, my journey can be summed up in receiving all I could from each different tribe mm -hmm. in the Christian family, taking their best. But then after a little while, being left with the question, 
there's got to be more than this. <laughs> and that's what led me to have a head-on collision with the organic expression of the church. To put it another way, to have a, an encounter with Jesus Christ through his body in real experience. You mentioned Keith Green, and um, you know, we didn't, I didn't know this about you. I love Keith Green. He was so powerful to me when, um, I mean, he died before I discovered him, but I discovered yeah. Keith Green, I guess it would have been, yeah, late. 80, so he hadn't been passed mm-hmm. away too long. I, have, I still listen to him today. Mm-hmm. Love his music. It's just such a radical call. So people have never listened to Keith Green. Go to YouTube and just uh, YouTube <laughs> yeah. uh, Keith Green. But maybe that was a mentor. Who are some other mentors in this journey mm-hmm. from um, a traditional expression of the church into organic expression of the church? The key mentors, and these were distant mentors because I had not met them. They had passed away long before I took this track. But one was Watchman Nee. Mm-hmm. And I own all of the books, virtually all the books by Watchman Nee, but there are about five that I could say, you know, I stand 100% behind. And those five books through his ministry were just earth-shaking in my own life. And one of them in particular was about the church. And what's interesting about that is that fell into my hands after about two or three years when I and others began to meet in this organic way we found watching these work and it confirmed a lot of what we were doing showing it was in fact the leading of the holy spirit but also it adds so much more insight and sophistication and took us to levels that we had not been beyond watchman knee was the man who watchman knee himself looked up to and regarded as a mentor and his name is t austin sparks and t austin sparks in my personal judgment, had more of a, a revelation, and I'm using that term to mean an understanding and a spiritual insight, spiritual understanding of Jesus Christ and God's purpose in him than anyone since the Apostle Paul. So, you know, when you interview theologians and scholars and Bible teachers, everyone has a favorite. Well, Martin Luther for some, right? Uh, your tribe, it's John Wesley, right? The Reformed, it's John Calvin. Well, in my personal judgment, T. Austin Sparks was so far ahead of all of them. And uh, you can get his writings today. They're not the easiest to read. But the kind of insight he had into the Lord, into the resurrection life of Christ, into God's eternal purpose, was just dumbfounding. I mean, astonishing. And so I would say that Watchman Nee and T. Austin Sparks were the two major pillars in my life, particularly in my 20s and 30s. Okay. You know, you often get pigeonholed and like, you're the house church guy. And, <laughs> and I know that when we first met, you kind of, you said, no, I'm an organic expression. And I'm thinking like, I, what's, yeah. how do you, what's the distinction you make between those uh, different phrases? Or sometimes yeah. people say primitive church, organic yeah. expression, yeah. house church. So what, what's the distinction that you like yeah. that you choose organic expression well you know here's the thing i don't identify myself uh, with quote-unquote house church Mm -hmm. because all house church is it's a group of christians that meet in a house (laughs) you know and jesus christ is not passionate about the house that's not his passion (laughs) and house churches therefore can range from a scaled down smallest beautiful version of the institutional church where you have pews bolted to the carpet floor, a pulpit in the living room, and a pastor preaching a sermon. And I would dare say that most 
house churches are simply a smaller version of institutional church. You still have a clergy, you still have a laity, you still have one person running things. Mm -hmm. And so I, I don't really see any difference. The, the other very popular form of house church is just sort of a, a potluck meal uh, where everyone just talks about their week. And in those kinds of expressions, I've, I've been to quite a few of them, I would, if I had a choice, I would run to the nearest institutional church because it was so boring or it was so off the map, you know, chaotic and very little true spiritual content. An organic expression of the church is something very different. It may meet in a home. It may meet in a coffee shop. It may meet out in parks. It may move from house to house. It even meet in a building, but the building will be arranged in such a way where the believers who are gathering and it can see one another, right? They're not staring at the back of someone's head. There are certain characteristics of an organic expression of the church. One of the big ones is there's life. And that life is not just coming from one or two, it's coming from all the members. It is a meeting where, uh, when the church actually gathers together, that has endless variety. But it's marked by every member participation. And the centrality of that gathering, whatever gathering it is, if it's a prayer meeting, if it's an open participatory meeting, if it's a ministry meeting where various people give ministry, the governing takeaway is that Jesus Christ is being revealed, unveiled, glorified, magnified. People go away saying, wow, we just got another sighting of our Lord through one another. And it's just an incredible thing. And it's the kind of gathering we see described in 1 Corinthians 14 where Paul says when you come together every one of you have a psalm, a hymn, a word of knowledge etc. Let all things be done unto edification. And we read about this kind of gathering in the book of Hebrews where the writer of Hebrews says exhort one another. He says it twice in that letter. We see it all throughout the book of Acts and it's organic because it's not a gathering that's organized by a human being. It comes up from the soil. The Holy Spirit is operating. Now, here's the thing, Brian, that a lot of people don't realize is that kind of expression, in order for it to survive and be maintained, this is what the apostolic ministry was. These were people who were specifically called by God. They had already experienced organic body life themselves as non-leaders. They grew up in that environment, and then they traveled after the calling, equipping, and sending by the Lord himself to raise up these kind of expressions and to train God's people how to meet. And then they would leave them on their own to the Lord under the headship of Christ. And then when they had problems or they were getting dry or they were having crisis, then the apostolic role would then come back and minister and recenter and reground and equip and deal with any problems. Most of your New Testament is made up of letters written by an apostolic person to an organic expression of the church that's having a crisis. That's exactly what most of the New Testament is. But all the epistles save three of them actually say for them and then if you include uh, Ephesians I think Ephesians was written to a group of ecclesias organic of a church that were not having a particular crisis but all the other letters of Paul for example and James and Peter these were organic expressions of a church that were having major problems 
and these apostolic people would write letters to them to uh, to reground them into Christ or remind them and to uh, to help alleviate the crisis or get them through it. So big difference between organic expression of the body of Christ and a house church. I have gone on record saying I wouldn't give two cents for most of the house church myself now in my personal opinion. Now, you know, I'm not degrading them. I'm just saying for me, having experienced the true organic expression of the body of Christ in various different places, boy, I wouldn't trade it for anything. And it's it's not a house church and it's not institutional church. It's neither. It's very difficult for people in our age and time, the time in which we live, to really grasp nuance. We want things dumbed down and to be as simple as possible. Therefore, house church, organic church, simple church, it all is the same thing. And right. the truth is it's not. Right. So um, just a couple questions, because I think this, this is really interesting, because, you know, in the, in the Wesleyan movement, Wesley was a master because he organized, um, well, he was an Ang- well, he was an Anglican Church of England person, and then, mm-hmm. but he had the Methodist societies, and we had class meetings mm-hmm. and bands, and, you know, within the, the Methodist side of, 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 um, of things these days, um, th- these smaller groups are coming back into practice, bands, mm-hmm. and so I'm just curious, mm-hmm. when you talk about an organic expression of the church, talk about members coming together, What's the difference between a member and actually a follower of Jesus? And do non-Christians, persons who are just interested, are they able to come into these meetings? Or, is, or how does so? How does evangelism work? How do you bring new people in? Can mm-hmm. you say speak something on that? Well, in all of the organic expressions of the church that I have been a part of or have worked with, the meetings are typically open to unbelievers. Mm-hmm. Right now, the goal unlike a Baptist church, right. right? The goal is not let's get people in here so they can get saved and that's why we exist. Right, right. You know, that's the theology of D.L. Moody is the name of the game is the salvation of lost souls. But when I've been part of organic expressions of the church, virtually all of our meetings, unless it was a meeting to deal with a particular problem, it was in-house, completely open to unbelievers. And I have seen with my own eyes to my pleasant surprise and amazement, 1 Corinthians 14 being borne out, Paul says, mm-hmm. you know, if you are all speaking the word of the Lord, which he uses the term prophesying, and an unbeliever comes among you, he will fall down in his face and say, God is in the midst of you. I can tell you stories of meetings where everyone is participating, everyone's sharing the Lord in that gathering, and an unbeliever comes in, they were invited by someone else, and at some point in the meeting, I've seen them fall down in the middle of the, of the carpet, you know, if we were meeting in a home, and say, I want to know this Jesus. I've never seen anything like this before. I've seen that more than once. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. Part of being an organic expression of a church is everything is seasonal. Living organisms go through seasons. Mm-hmm. So there are seasons for outreach and there are seasons for inreach. So many uh, of these kinds of ecclesias will, with the leading of the Lord, have certain seasons where they're going to really intensely focus on reaching lost people. And that can take on many different creative ways, you know, mm-hmm. through servant evangelism, going out, you know, to the city and locking arms with others to help those in need and showing them the Lord that way to having specific meetings, a series of meetings just designed to preach the gospel of the kingdom and bring lost people into it. But the beautiful thing about it is when the season ends, then the, the body of believers shifts to something else. It's, 
it's moving, it's free-flowing. We do not get stuck in ritual and tradition. The Holy Spirit is constantly moving. And when you see the book of Acts and you look at it narratively and chronologically, which is very often a way of reading it that we miss, you see that the ecclesia in Jerusalem and other places, they went through seasons. You know, you see this in the epistles as well. So the answer to that, it's, it's very, it's free-flowing, it's not systematized. It's just according to the leading of the Lord in the season in which the, the body of believers is in at the time. A couple things, um, and, and you've heard these, probably these are probably criticisms of some of those, like how do you guard doctrinal fidelity in a context when it's open-ended? Mm-hmm. And then what's the role of, say, let's just use the word expert and maybe call it mm-hmm. apostle or like, mm-hmm. you know, you yourself, you've done a lot of study, so you mm-hmm. kind of go around and you, you have a whole network. So... How does that work? So, like, we have organic expressions around. Um, so, how do, how do how how do you guard doctrinal f- fidelity at some level so that mm-hmm. they don't end up like in the early church? You end up having groups that end up being outside the the Christian faith. So you had like the Gnostics. You had people mm-hmm. that had improper understandings of who Jesus was. So, how, how do you guard against that? And then, what role does say mm-hmm. you know if, if if you're not going to have clergy, which again I under, I understand that. There's people that end up maybe having certain gifts. So how, how does that work in, in, in a network of churches? What we find in the New Testament is that people who are in this apostolic, quote-unquote, church-planting role mm-hmm. are people who authentically know the Lord, right? Mm-hmm. And so they're people who are grounded in the biblical story, mm-hmm. right? Peter, for example, he spent three and a half years with Jesus. You know, he was not a seminary graduate. <laughs> Neither were the other apostles. Now, Paul Tarsus, he, he did go to school, so to speak. He was a rabbi. Uh, he was a Pharisee. But then what's interesting is that when he met the Lord, he had to rethink his and rearrange his entire theology in the light of Christ, right? So basically, it comes down to whoever is planting that particular expression. If they're not doctrinally sound, if they have some wacky theology that's going to be instilled in whoever follows them they don't last very long or they go off the beam entirely to where you know you read about them in the newspaper for example the waco group (laughs) i have very rarely met a group of christians outside the institutional church that would fit that construct what you find more prevalent is groups that are holding to a false doctrine are very institutional. Jehovah's Witnesses are worldwide. I don't apologize for saying that they are biblically unsound. Right. But Mormons are worldwide, very institutional. There was a time when the worldwide Church of God, led by Armstrong, could be described in the term you're using. They took a different course. So when a group is institutional and they're denominational, that kind of structure is much more ripe for false doctrine to spread and to be solidified and to recruit people into it than, you know, a a small group that's meeting in a home. So it really depends on who is the person who is founding that group. What do they believe? Paul Tarsus had this problem in his own day. That's why he wrote to Titus and to Timothy, because those early organic expressions of a church that he raised up, those kingdom communities, which I think is a better term. That's good. Uh, Organic church has become 
so ubiquitous that it means 5,000 different things today, so I really don't like to use it anymore. Yeah, organic it, sounds like food or something. Yeah, well, everything's <laughs> organic. Not too long ago, I hit a website that was calling itself an organic church, and it had a clergy, and it had a choir, and it had a church building with pews and a pulpit. <laughs> so it's basically the word has become a clay word that's been molded in shape to fit any kind of church expression. And for that reason, I don't use it, but a kingdom community. And that's what the first century churches were. But in effect, you know, Paul had to write to Timothy. He had to write to Titus. We have Second Peter, the letter of Jude. These were kingdom communities that were being infiltrated by people who were bringing a different gospel. And those writings were to the people in the, in the fellowship, uh, in the case of Second Peter and Jude, to arm them against imbibing what was being taught that was contrary to Jesus Christ. But in the case of Paul, he was writing to apostolic workers, saying, okay, you need to bring the truth and refute these false teachings. So the bottom line is false doctrine is much more prevalent in institutional structures and much more dangerous in institutional structures than in non-denominational independent fellowships. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. I mean, many of the listeners are um, not exclusively, but a lot of United Methodists listening. Obviously, that denomination is having a real kind of war within itself over over certain pieces. And so, I mean, so your point's uh, fair enough. Um, And I I actually like the idea of of kingdom communities, too. And there's continuity with insurgents with these earlier works. Absolutely. But but what's what's interesting to me, I always think about authors... um, You know, you, you got that book on your heart and it comes out and then you but you cranked a whole bunch of books out before you wrote yeah. Insurgents. Yeah. And so, you know, it's I think by my math I might be wrong, thirteen years after the first book you get yep. insurgents roughly. That's right. Um, um, Perfect. So how come that how come insurgents, since it really captures <laughs> the power of your message, why yes. does it take thirteen years and what did you have to learn or what's the epiphany or deeper insight that suddenly this book appears that in a sense seems like that could have been there at the beginning? So yeah. what did you have to learn before you could write this that book? And that's a great question. I'm someone who writes a book when the burden of a particular message is so great that it's less painful to actually do the hard work of writing the book than it is to keep that burden inside me, right? So the kingdom message, I think I was exposed to the gospel of the kingdom at least, at least eight years before I wrote the book. Because I remember in 2010 was the first time I shared on the gospel of the kingdom. I gave a message to a, well, to a kingdom community, an organic expression of the church. And I guess within that eight-year span, I have been learning more about what the kingdom of God is. And at some point, I think it was 2016-17, I began to feel impressed to look at this phrase, the gospel of the kingdom. And I spent a lot of time investigating what that word means. And I found that very few books have been written on the gospel of the kingdom. Many books on the kingdom of God from all different directions, from all different theological perspectives, Mm -hmm. but very few on the gospel of the kingdom. And at the same time, Brian, what was in the news constantly, which very interestingly enough, it's not in the news much at all, at all right now, the time we're recording this, but every day you would read about radical terrorist organizations Mm -hmm. and what they were doing. 
and how they were infiltrating the West and how they were recruiting even Americans who were Christian. And so I started to watch these documentaries and I was reading articles about it and it raised a question, how is it that a person can be so devoted to the point of giving their life and when you look at how they raise their families and their children yeah how is it that their commitment their allegiance their devotion could be so off the chain radical and total and all in to a false cause to a cause that's even violent and destructive over against the true living gospel of Jesus Christ. Because if you took the average person who's gotten involved in a radical terrorist group and you compared their devotion now. Now, hear me. For some reason, this gets lost. I'm not talking about what they do. No, we got I'm talking about the their devotion, yeah. their passion, their allegiance, their complete and utter commitment. And you compare it to the average Christian today, there's no comparison. And yet... The radical terrorist is committed to something completely false and destructive. How could that be? And my conclusion, Brian, was that the gospel that we're preaching today, and I use we generically, mm -hmm. but the gospel that most of us hear is not the gospel that the first century Christians heard. See, when the first century Christians heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, which was the gospel of the kingdom, it produced a radicalization but a radicalization to this person from Nazareth, this prophet who called himself the Son of Man and who others called the Son of God. That's the kind of devotion that those people had. It was similar to, talking about the passion, devotion, commitment, to what we see in the radical terrorist groups. And I had to ask myself why. And my conclusion was the kind of convert made is the direct result of the kind of gospel preached. Mm -hmm. And therefore, I concluded that the gospel of the kingdom has been lost to us in the 20th century and the 21st century. And so I was compelled to do not a systematic study, but a narrative chronological study of the kingdom of God from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And what I found astounded me, and it altered my own life. And so I was compelled to put it in a book. Now that book actually came out of a conference that I did in 2017 on the gospel of the kingdom. And it was unlike any conference I'd spoken in throughout my years in that we had spontaneous baptisms mm. after some of the meetings. People were just so arrested by the message that they wanted to cut all ties with the world system and pledge their allegiance to Jesus Christ and no other flag. And so it was a real it was a real radical encounter that we had with the Lord, all of us. Um, and I talk about it in the beginning of the book, you know, but that was sort of what birthed the book. And some of the testimonials of the people who were in that conference, you could read their testimonials in the book. And what's fascinating is that people who were part of now these are Christians now, yes. who are part of the progressive left right, politically and theologically, were utterly altered by the message of the gospel of the kingdom and left that camp. And people who are part of the conservative right, politically and theologically, 
completely forsook that camp after they heard and responded to the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom transcends both the progressive left and the conservative right. This is very difficult for uh, us in the 21st century, especially in the climate that we're living in now politically, to really get our minds around because all we know is the progressive left or the conservative right. We don't know anything else. And yet when Jesus Christ showed up, you had the progressive left and the conservative right. You had the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he transcended both. He wouldn't fit into either camp. So that's what the book explores. And, you know, there's a lot of Old Testament work in it and New Testament work. But I tried to, I tried to present it in a level where anyone can understand, including someone in high school. And yet I have theologian friends and, and scholars who have really appreciated the book and even endorsed it. So that's been a blessing. But I would say that's my landmark work. Well, it's actually fascinating. Just that, you know, we've been, um, just got to meet you for the first time today. We've been together for a few hours now. But I, I mean, I just saw that you just really lit up. So that you can really, like, you almost, I mean, would you actually describe your insights in the kingdom, even though you've been doing this? And again, I'm not trying to, like, pigeonhole, but it's almost like you kind of got, um, wouldn't call it reconverted, but like renewed in a really powerful oh, way yeah. with this insight. Um, Absolutely. So, you know, I love, um, my, my main book is called Realigning with God, and, and my whole hermeneutic is, is rooted off of Matthew 4.17, essentially, which is, you know, Jesus, um, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, mm. be repenting continually for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mm. And so, like, and, and, you know, this, and I'm interested in this left-right thing, because, you know, my, my take is, you know, um, Jesus um, can be found in both, but is also against both at the same time in the mm -hmm. sense that there's always going to be um, mm -hmm. ongoing repentance. And that's the piece yeah. that we miss when we break into tribes. And, yes. and so, the, the, so what are the blocks? Because, I mean, when I, when I listen to this, I mean, you know, when I teach, you know, I teach at the seminary, you're on a lot of Christians. I mean, who doesn't want this, right, at least in their mind? So yes. what, what are the blocks? What are you found that are blocks that prevent... Um, let's just say Christians. We're not even talking about most people, but what what makes it hard for us to hear the mess, the the gospel of the kingdom as as followers of Jesus? I think a big big part of it is that most of us as Christians have not had our eyes opened to see Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about a, a physical vision that you mm -hmm. see with your eyes but an unveiling that is so dramatic and so profound and so drastic that we are left breathless, that we are astounded. Mm -hmm. I've made the statement that good preachers leave you saying, oh, what a good sermon. But great preachers leave you saying, wow, what a Christ. Mm -hmm. And so the way I open up the book, even before I get into the, the challenge of Jesus and the call of Jesus and what the gospel of the kingdom is, I talk about the king's beauty. I think it's a mistake for the Christian message to be presented in a way that sounds like this. Jesus came and died for our sins. Isn't that wonderful? He says, if you trust in him, if you believe in him, you won't go to hell, you go, you'll go to heaven and, and maybe even make the world a better place to throw in the progressive aspect of it. That's not enough for most people to be so blown away whereby they're going to say, I'm going to give my entire life to him. Right, right. You see, what was it that caused those 12 men, I'm speaking of the 12 disciples now, 
to forsake everything, their businesses, their families, and to drop it all and to follow this man. It is because they, to use the words of John, they beheld his glory. They were captured by his glory. They saw him in such a way that it was the sight of peerless worth that drew their hearts to him in such a, a drastic way, a devastating way, but they could forsake everything. And that is what is needed. That's what Paul had in the first century when he proclaimed Christ to people who had never heard about him. That's what Peter had when he presented Christ. And that's what, it, for the most part, in my personal judgment, most Christians are lacking today when they present the gospel, including preachers, professors. And the principle there is if you haven't been wrecked by a sighting of Christ yourself, you can't give that to other people. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think really the bottom line is we have not, our eyes have not been opened, I'm speaking in generalities now, mm -hmm. the majority of Christians, to where we have been captured by his glory. And I think it's the job of the preacher to present Jesus Christ in such a way that people are awash with that sublime revelation of who he is, but they fall to their knees and on their faces and say, I don't want anything else. I'm giving it all for him. That's what I think is lacking. And so the first part of the book is the king's beauty, seeing the king's beauty. And I tried to paint as best I could a picture of that. And I also have some audios that people can listen to. They're free, but there's links to hear that what I'm trying to describe, the pulling of the heart by this vision, you know, that our eyes be open to quote Paul in Ephesians. The other thing is the world system, Brian, has captured so many of God's people by the relentless narratives it gives constantly on all forms of media, whether, whether it's social media, whether it's television, whether it's movies, whether it's music. And those narratives have a way of shaping the mind and even the heart. And what it does is it, it clouds our view of the Lord. The Lord then gets squeezed into whatever this narrative is that we've imbibed from the world system. And one of the things that I point out in the book, I tried to expose what the world system is, where it started. The first use of the word kingdom is not referenced to the kingdom of God. It's referenced to the other kingdom. And the kingdom of darkness, the other term for it, is the world system, which Paul rails against, which uh, John, the apostle, railed against, and which Jesus himself talked about the world, the world system. It's a system. And it's all over. And it's so pervasive today that it's captured the hearts and minds of God's people without them even realizing it. I had no idea that I was wedded to the world. I had no idea what the world was. And now I see it clearly. And I'm that's what baptism was, by the way. In the first century, you broke the loyalty oath to the world system. You were switching kingdoms. You know, it wasn't just a, a, an outward symbolic thing. There was a powerful encounter that happened when you went under the water there and you proclaimed Jesus is Lord and King. And I share from my own experience, you know, how that worked in my own life, how my eyes were opened. And that's a, it's a progressive thing. You know, it's not like you don't arrive. I haven't arrived. I'm still, the Lord's still probing and pointing things out. I then cut that off. But it's that, that sight of the beauty of Christ that gives us the power in the Holy Spirit 
to cause us to to break those those ties. I like to talk about spiritual formation, and again, I don't know if you use that term or not. Uh, but you know, when you talk about breaking the world's ties, you know, some people might call it discipleship. But mm-hmm. um, you know, when you when you talk about persons having this encounter with the Christ, um, I mean. I, you know, we we all have seen people that have a dynamic encounter. Like you know, you 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 shared earlier that you know you had this um, really powerful experience when you were in college, right? But you've kept it for all these these decades now. A lot of people get all fired up young, and then they slowly just yeah. kind of get squeezed out of them, and they get institutionalized. Um, and I can imagine that happening in variety of contexts. Um, so, what have you found to be essential? beyond an experience mm-hmm. with the gospel of the kingdom that with with Christ mm-hmm. how do you keep that alive mm-hmm. um, long term like what are I mean obviously it's going to be a meeting together but what are the practices day to day that help you to um, disengage from the world mm-hmm. um, and not fooling yourself to think that you're doing that for me personally there are several ingredients are necessary for transforming a person from clay to precious stone to use biblical imagery you know adam is made of clay and then in the city of jerusalem at the end of the scripture you have precious stones and there's a whole message there about the continuity of the biblical narrative but transformation you know we can define it in a number of different ways becoming more like christ Another way to say it is just becoming a less awful human being. (laughs) But to be changed into his likeness, to quote the New Testament, there are several factors. One of them is beholding the Lord. Mm -hmm. Uh, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians. It is by beholding the Lord that we are transformed. So that means that I have to keep Christ before me. And Jesus Christ is inexhaustible in his riches, as Paul said in Ephesians 3. In other words, we're never going to exhaust who he is. And so that means that I have to have a constant influx of Christ before me. And because he is multi-splendored in his glory and in his beauty and in his majesty and in his person, then the only way I'm going to be able to see him as he really is in new and fresh ways is to receive a portion of him through the different members of his body Mm. right so it's very important and for me i'm in contact with other believers where we have no other agenda except we just share the lord with one another what is he showing us what what have we seen of him recently this would include spending time with him either in fellowship I'm not going to use the word prayer because I think prayer means many different things to people. But the highest level of prayer is fellowship, fellowshipping with him. It's a two-way conversation. So when you're saying fellowship, you're not talking about fellowship with other believers. You're talking about fellowship fellowship with with the Lord. You look at prayer, you have intercession, supplication, petition, thanksgiving. But fellowship is deeper than all of that. It's, you know, we're called into the fellowship of his son, 1 Corinthians. So there's fellowship with other believers where I'm hearing the Lord through them. I'm, I'm seeing him in fresh ways. I'm hearing their experience of him. And then there is direct fellowship with the Lord. So these are all parts of beholding. Then there's going to scripture 
But we can read scripture in ways where we never encounter Christ. It just becomes white noise, you know, right, 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 right. or a dead, dry book. But there are other ways where we can take scripture and actually encounter the living God. We, we can look into the face of Christ through scripture. So that's another way to behold the Lord is by taking scripture and learning how to wield it in a way where we're seeing the Lord in fresh ways. So beholding the Lord's another one. Renewing the mind is, is the second one. We are transformed by the renewing of our mind, Romans 12. And that's a process that doesn't happen just by ourselves. But again, we need the input of other believers. So this is where the role of reading Christian books comes in or watching Christian videos or listening to audios and messages. It's the drip, drip effect. I can hear a message once by someone who just, you know, blows my mind by showing me the Lord in a way I've never seen. But if I don't listen to that message again at some point and again, or if I read a book once, but I never pick it up again, then I'm going to probably lose that. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm a proponent of the drip, drip effect. If you listen to a message by someone that really has stirred your heart, listen to it again. And then at some point, listen to it again. And the same with books. It's so much more with the Lord. So there has to be that renewing of the mind. And then another one is, when we're talking about transformation, recognizing the cross in our life. And by that, I'm not talking about the atoning death of Jesus. I'm talking about the death to self. <laughs> yes. And there's opportunities virtually every day where the Lord is going to invite you up a hill. And either to make the decision that you're going to lie on that wood and die, or you're going to run away <laughs> and say no to the cross. But the cross is the primary instrument by which he gains ground in our life. Mm -hmm. yeah. so, so I would say those are the ingredients. And so in my own life, I am on a daily basis seeking to behold him, to renew my mind, to have fellowship with other believers and allow them to speak into my life. And always looking for the cross to, to the point where I call it, we have an instinct for the cross. Mm -hmm. And that instinct is to always say yes to the cross. Mm. It's not easy. Yeah. And, you know, I haven't mastered that. You know, there have been times I've said no to the cross. And, and typically you get in trouble when you do that in some way. But um, to say yes to the cross. Because in the other side of the cross is the resurrection. And that principle holds for our own lives. You know, we learn to live by dying to ourselves. No, that was, that was really good, really helpful. Uh, you know, you clearly love the scripture that comes out in your work. It's come out in our conversation already, even in the last answer. Um, and you mentioned that sometimes it can be white noise. And, and you know, and that's true for everybody. Yes. Um, I mean, I have a PhD in biblical studies, and sometimes I have to switch up how I read. So wh yes. what's kept the Bible fresh for you for all these years, Frank? Well, it's not always fresh. Right. So everything wears out except for Jesus Christ himself. That's good. And that includes your spiritual disciplines. Eventually they're going to wear out. That includes how you read the Bible. That'll eventually wear out. So I am a proponent of using different tools and building a very large toolbox mm -hmm. so that when I approach either prayer or scripture, I'm not doing it the same way all the time. Mm -hmm. 
So consequently, I have over the years developed different ways of fellowshipping with the Lord, different ways of communicating with Him, different ways of reading and approaching the Scripture, so that if uh, one of those approaches gets dry or wears out, then I discard it and I pick up another one. This is interesting, and like I think I heard on your podcast, um, and I, I use this phrase of other people, sanctified imagination. So, yeah. what if you take like a like a just take a narrative, like let's say a healing narrative. Let's just even say the the woman touching Jesus. Yes. I'm not trying to put you on the spot, but yes. full narrative. Yeah, no. One of the beautiful things about the Gospels that I have done, and I by no means invented this. The first person I've come across who who did this was uh, a man named Frank Laubach. Mm-hmm. He wrote the autobiography of Jesus Christ, and what he did is he took the Gospels and he put it all in the first person. Mm. It's powerful. So reading the woman with an issue of blood, instead of, and then Jesus was walking through the crowd, and a woman touched him, and she was unclean, you would read it as if Jesus was writing his own diary and then as I was walking people everywhere were trying to touch me and they were pressing upon me but I felt only one it was different for virtue flowed out of me and I stopped dead in my tracks and I said who touched me and my disciples said Lord there's 50 people who have touched you so now you're let me put it this way you're reading it in Christ you're reading it through the eyes of Jesus and that's a different mountain upon which to stand yes you're seeing it from a totally different perspective so that's one way the other way too is you could make yourself the woman and and I did that in the beginning of insurgents I tell some of the stories in the Gospels but you are the character you're the one touching Jesus yeah. Again, it lifts it to a different dimension. It doesn't do any violence to no, it, right. but you're looking at it from a different perspective, a, a different dimension, and it brings it to life in a new way. How, how do you? What's your present understanding of your calling and mission, and um, and maybe you know what do you? What's your biggest dream for the next twenty five years? Maybe those things dovetail there. What? Do you, uh. So, my present calling and mission, one is to reintroduce what Paul calls the eternal purpose, Mm -hmm. God's eternal purpose, the whole reason why he created to the Lord's people. I think this also has been lost to us. If you read Genesis 1 and 2 very carefully and you make a list of all of the things that are mentioned there, you have a a man and a woman, you have a marriage, you you have gold, pearl, and precious stone, the river was producing those things, You you have a tree, you have heaven and earth. And then you you fast forward all the way to the end of the Bible and you have Revelation 21 and 22. What you find is all those themes that were mentioned in Genesis 1 and 2 reappear in Revelation 21 and 22, but they've developed. It's like they've blossomed. The seed's there in Genesis 1 and 2, but now they're in full bloom. And what the biblical story is, it's the narrative of all those themes growing and maturing until they are culminated in Revelation 21 and 22. And those are the themes of God's eternal purpose. It's what he's been after from the very beginning. And it's not salvation. It's not making the world a better place. 
is something way beyond all of that. One of my books was dedicated to this very thing, From Eternity to Here, is, mm-hmm. the, is the, uh, the milestone book that I wrote, seeking my best to unveil God's eternal purpose. And you will find that theme of the eternal purpose in every single book I've written. It's there, and all the messages I've spoken. As part of that theme, you have the gospel of the kingdom, which is what insurgence is all about. You have living by the indwelling life of Christ. You have the body of Christ. You have the family of God. You have the house of God. You have the bride of Christ. And and at the center is this incredible person, Jesus of Nazareth, the Lord of the world. So my work is to introduce, reintroduce that to this generation because I do believe the eternal purpose has by and large been lost to us. I do believe the gospel of the kingdom has by and large been lost to us. I think that there is an experience of church that most Christians have never seen, but their inward instincts long for it. And when they see bits and pieces of it, or or they've had glimpses of it, maybe in college, I had a taste of it, they say things like, man, those were the days. I wish I can recapture that. And yet it is available to us. To your other question, my dream I have to go with 25 years from now? I was just throwing a time out there. So I just always <laughs> like, you know. 25 I, years, I'll be what? 42 years old. Yeah, you're going to be a young guy still. <laughs> so we're assuming you have great health when you get 25 years from now to get this big goal. So what, well, what, is, what is the dream? Okay, so here's, here's the dream. The dream is in um, four parts. One is that the ministry dream team that I have had in my heart for a long time will not only have been realized, but it will be way into its accomplishment. For those listening, they don't know what that is, you can go to my blog and just type in the search ministry dream team, frankbella.org, and there's a whole PDF article on it. So the ministry dream team will not only have come into existence, but it will be matured and uh, we will still be at it, spreading the gospel of the kingdom in many various and sundry ways. The other one is, that there will be 10, at least 10, but 10 is my goal, kingdom communities on the planet that will serve as models of what body life is all about. A group of believers that are living in community where Jesus Christ is the living practical head of that group of believers, what it looks like and how it functions. What I've described in Reimagining Church and what I've described in Insurgents, the later parts of the book, that we have 10 of those on the earth. Now, some people will say, well, that's that's really a low bar, 10. But, you know, Paul planted about 13 in his lifetime. And when you say 10, um, I mean, I, can, I, I, would, I would personally hope that there's at least 10 like right now. Are you thinking about 10 that you've actually helped to launch out of your own ministry? Yeah, yeah, I'm talking about yourself personally. I'm talking about personally. Like right now, in this time that we're speaking, I can't point to one. Right now, and I could have years ago, but we're in a season now that's very strange. Yeah. And with COVID and everything, it's really taken a lot out. You know, I'm sure they exist. I just don't. I just don't know where. Right, right, right. Yeah. But I'm talking about personally, my, kind of. Yeah, that I will ten. myself yeah. have had a hand in raising up, founding ten. Yeah. The other thing is that I have a project goal, and that is to go through all of the letters of Paul, and. Um, produce a 3D approach, a 3D reading, a 3D exploration of all of Paul's letters. And I have accomplished the the first letter, uh, Galatians. Galatians in 3D, it's a masterclass on the Deeper Christian Life Network. 
And my intention is to do that for all of them. It's a very different approach than the left brain, analytical, verse by verse, logical reading of scripture. It is a completely, it's a narrative. It's turning the letters of Paul into a narrative. And by doing that, boy, the insights that come out of it are just amazing. So that would be another piece of it. Jesus trained 12 to carry on his work, to preach the gospel of the kingdom. He trained them and then he sent them out. And then Paul of Tarsus duplicated that in Ephesus. Jesus did it in Galilee. Paul did it in Ephesus. And he trained eight. And if you count Epaphras, it was nine. And he sent them out. He trained them in Ephesus. And then he sent them out. And those are the people who brought the gospel of the kingdom all over Asia Minor. Those churches that we read in Revelation 2 and 3, those are the churches that were planted by those people. And so I would like, if God is merciful to me, to, um, to train 10. So 25 years from now, I would, like, I would like to have my own Ephesus where I'm training 10 to carry on the, the work of the gospel of the kingdom and the eternal purpose of God to bring it to uh, other and to establish more kingdom communities. That's powerful. Just a final two questions. Um, if, if you had to pick um, two or three books, and maybe you've already mentioned them, but you can, if, 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 um, but two or three books outside of the Bible that have shaped you deeply. The Normal Christian Life by Watchman Nee, You Are My Friends by Frank Lubbock, which, by the way, is out of print. And then I would say The School of Christ by T. Austin Sparks. Mm-hmm. And where can listeners find you if they want to learn more? One of the best places. Mm. Probably my blog is my home base, frankviola.org. They can read all the articles that are on the blog. There are hundreds and hundreds of them. They could uh, access the podcasts. At the present time, I have three different podcasts. The YouTube channel is on there. The network is on there. Everything I've produced, basically, is on there. All the resources. Off of frankviola.org. That's That's the easiest place to go. One-stop shop. It's all there, yep. And they can. Are you on social media at all? I am, but that's that's hit and miss. The best way to reach me is through the blog. That's easy. All right. Well, <laughs> uh, thank you for your contribution to the cause of Christ. Um, you, the books that you've written, um, the work that you do. Um, I know you help writers. You help. Um, I mean, you have a your deeper Christian life network. That's what you call that. All the materials you've worked. Um, again, that's a, that's a labor of love, and just want to thank you um, for all the work that you do, and thank you very much for the time to be on the show today. I'm honored to be on, and I enjoyed it. Hey, friends, until next time, live by faith, be known by love, and be voices of hope in a world that's desperate for it. Amen. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Insurgents Podcast and give it a five-star review on iTunes. This will help others find it. Also, you can join Frank's unfiltered email list at frankviola.org and receive encouragement, challenges, and insights connected to the gospel of the kingdom. Remember, the insurgence has begun. Don't miss it.